Hello, everybody, and welcome back to yet another episode of the Nailed It Ortho podcast. My name is Dr. Cole. Myself and Dr. Fitz started this podcast to go over high yield orthopedic surgery topics, but you are tuned into, again, a different type of episode. You know, sometimes we have our so called off brand topics where we talk about not a traditional orthopedic surgery topic. And this one is going to be more about kind of the business side of things. When we're starting to look at contracts and a lot of the things that we talk about, you can apply to private practice. And I mean, I must say out of all the podcast episodes I have done, I don't think I have gone back and listened to it again and taken more notes on any other podcast as I have on this one. You know, this is really a great episode in store for you all. So if anybody is a resident thinking about going into practice, any type of private practice, and a lot of these things can apply to academics, but a lot of them apply to private practice. If you're a fellow, even if you're attending listening to this, and you're just realizing you didn't really get a lot of the business side of education on orthopedics, again, this was like this was a great episode. Uh, and just to tell you all a little bit more about who we have in store talking for us today, we have Dr. Douglas Lundy. Um, a little bit more about Dr. Lundy. He completed his residency at the Georgia Baptist Medical Center in Atlanta. He actually got his medical school degree at the Medical College of Georgia School of Medicine. He did his fellowship in orthopedic trauma surgery at Vanderbilt University Medical Center. He also was the Crow president of Resurgence Orthopedics, a very large multi-specialty orthopedic surgery group uh, in Atlanta, Georgia for many, many years. And since then, he has now moved and is the new chairman for the Department of Orthopedics at St. Luke University's Health Network. I mean, he has a long list of things that he has done in his accomplishments. I mean, he is a diplomat of the American Board of Orthopedic Surgery. He served as a clinical professor of orthopedic surgery at Emory School of Medicine, as well as a clinical assistant professor of orthopedic surgery at the Medical College of Georgia. Again, many leadership positions in the American Board of Orthopedic Surgery, the AAOS, or the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons, the OTA, or the Orthopedic Trauma Association, as well as the American Orthopedic Association and the American College of Surgeons, named one of the top doctors in Georgia for 10 straight years in a row. And I mean, again, we go into a lot in this podcast. We go into private practice. We go about things you want to make sure is on your contract or not in your contract. What are some of the things in a practice that you want to look forward and look at? You know, this is kind of a a another uh, another podcast. If you have listened to our previous episodes with Dr. Oren Franco, who also did a great job, but this is also another great podcast. I know I've been hyping this stuff for the past couple of minutes, but again, this was a super great episode. And without further ado, let's go ahead and hop into today's episode. Don't forget to hit the subscribe button and leave us a review after this podcast episode was help us out a bunch. You are now listening to Nailed It, the orthopedic surgery podcast featuring doctors Jay Fitz and Wendell Cole. All 
Dr. Lundy, welcome to the Nailed It Ortho podcast. Uh, uh, I've been looking forward to this episode or speaking to you for a while. So welcome to the Nailed It Ortho podcast. Thank you, Wendell. Appreciate it. Yes, sir. And this will be a little different type of podcast. You know, normally we typically go over high yield orthopedic topics, but this is also uh, the overall theme of this podcast is also something that's really important for a lot of residents and fellows and even a lot of attendings out there to know. So we're kind of talking a little bit more about the business side of things. So, you know, and I, I you know, you know, who, who better to have us uh, to have us <laughs> <laughs> talk about this than you, um, but kind of just going all the way back, you know, just kind of just diving into yourself as a person. And, you know, later on, we'll get into a little bit more of the practice stuff, but just, just some background on you. Where'd you, where'd you grow up and kind of like, what kind of a household did you grow up in or your only child or just where, where are you from? Sure. Yeah. I grew up in Atlanta. Um, I'm the oldest of three sons to my parents and uh, my, everybody, my father and both my brothers are all engineers. So I was the, the rebel that, that went into medicine instead. Yeah. What, what brought you towards the uh, medicine? I'm actually, I grew up in Atlanta myself, but what brought you towards the medicine route? Where in Atlanta? Where are you from? Uh, Marietta. I went to oh high school gosh. in Marietta, Georgia. Yeah. So my old practice was in Marietta. I practiced at Kennestone. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh. Um, you know, it's hard to remember back then exactly what made everything go. You know, it's kind of one of those things I think you're called toward. Uh, my brothers and I rarely ever got sick. and went to the doctor for that. What we go for the doctor for were sports injuries. And of course, it was our orthopedic surgeon that we would always see. And I think that's kind of what eventually pulled me into it. Yeah. And, and so can you kind of tell me, at least tell us a story about what made you choose uh, trauma in general, what brought you towards that, um, you know, that field? So I, I firmly believe that your specialty calls you. I mean, once you're in orthopedics, I think the field is pretty level. Uh, from a competitive standpoint, for the most part, between the different specialties. So I really, I really truly believe it calls you. You don't, you don't actually pick it. So I fully went into orthopedics, like many of the guys in my generation, with every intention of doing sports medicine. Uh, that was right when arthroscopic ACLs were really taken off. You know, Jimmy Andrews and the guys at Birmingham really had done a tremendous amount of work at that point. And being in Atlanta, we knew quite a bit about what they were doing over there we were exposed to a lot of young, exciting sports medicine attendings. And we were doing a lot of really cool arthroscopic surgery in the knee and the shoulder. Um, but the, the thing that I kept getting drawn to was, you know, in the later in the afternoon and then throughout the evening when we were operating on trauma and back in the nineties, we did trauma all into the evening and well into the night, just the, the, the absolute variety, the, the incredible variety and diversity of things that you were exposed to constantly over and over again, the different mechanisms of injury, the, all the different things. And uh, later on, as I, after I had kids and I, I learned, you know, about how people learn and, you know, the watching the struggles that your kids have, I realized that I actually was stimulated by the chaos of trauma rather than the orderly nature of something like total joint arthroplasty or, or spine surgery, which is a very ordered and carefully thing. It's just the, I would, I would do better. I was thriving more in the more chaotic, disruptive environment, which is probably some form of psychopathology that uh, <laughs> my friends are probably very aware of. Interesting. So more of, is it was more of the fact that you woke up in the morning, you didn't necessarily know 
what cases you had for the for the next day and you kind of like the uh not spontaneity but i guess somewhat of the spontaneity of it and uh and and just you know waking up to you know it's kind of a new adventure you know, i guess you could say uh each day that's a good way to put it yeah i think you know when you're called to the er and you get down and oh wow this injury's here as well and what do we oh there's another one coming in now what are we going to do and how are we going to balance these things and then the the after you know the post initial phase of workup and management in the ICU and management on the floor. And I think it, to, to some degree, like I said, I think it calls you. I think before long, if you're honest with yourself, you find that you really enjoy it and like it. It's, it's always interesting me, to me that some of the specialties that I'm not particularly drawn to, why people, what, what do people see in that? Why would you want to do that? And I think they think the same thing about what I do. And so I, I think we all love orthopedics as a whole but I think our specialty actually calls us out. And so one of the things, at least that I thought for a while, and now I know that isn't true, but when I thought of trauma, I thought you had to work at like a big level one, you know, trauma center at an academic institution. And obviously that's, that's not always the case, but was that, was it, I know, I know you did your, uh, your training at Vanderbilt, but, but coming out, did you have that mindset or what, what made you choose what type of practice you want to go into since, you know, back in the day, you're, you know, you're, you're doing cases midnight and all, you know, all types of, all types of days. So what, what drove you or, you know, what, what was going through your mind at that time? So back that was in uh, the late nineties, I matched in 90, uh, my fellowship in 96, I guess it was finished my residency in 98 and then was a trauma fellow at Vandy. From 98 to 99, uh, Ken Johnson, Dr. Johnson was my fellowship director at the time. And my wife's and my total intent, what we had told Dr. Johnson when we got there was we were going back to Grady and I was going to work at Grady Memorial and I was really looking forward to it. And through no fault of Emory or Grady, uh, it just didn't work out. Uh, there was just always something that just somehow it didn't work out. And we were, we literally the guys at Emory and I talked literally for probably 15, 12 to 15 years about me coming there, huh. even throughout the different phases of my practice, it just never quite worked there, but that was where we were hanging our hat. And so we were, and then my wife and I were talking about different things and trying to kind of get away and do something different. And uh, one of our friends, um, my friends in, in my, that I met along the way in Atlanta had moved out to Fort Collins, Colorado, and I was describing this awesome opportunity in this private group. And we thought, well, why not? Let's go see what this is about. So we went out there and checked it out. My wife fell immediately in love with the place and the group was great. It was orthopedic center of the Rockies really got along well with the guys. And it was something completely different than growing up in Atlanta. We thought, why not? Let's do this. This is kind of cool. So we went out there, uh, we were there for seven years and, uh, due to family issues and some other things, uh, after seven years, it was imperative on us that we needed to relocate back to our home, uh, down back in the deep South. So we went back to Atlanta. Then once again, I, uh, strongly courted Grady and Emory ortho, uh, once again, no, no fault of their own. I would never say anything bad about them at all. It just didn't, things just didn't work out. And then I also uh, looked at working at uh, Atlanta Medical Center, which was also a uh, academic center in the middle of the city. And that just didn't quite kind of work out either. And so I ended 
uh, up, fortunately, and I'm glad I did at Resurgence uh, Orthopedics, which is one of the largest groups in the country. I'm very pleased uh, the way that worked out and all those things. And one of the great things uh, about Resurgence is it helped me develop not just as a surgeon, but also as a leader within the group. So getting back to your point, though, I was extremely busy in trauma at Fort Collins uh, with Orthopedic Center of the Rockies and uh, Kennestone Hospital and North Fulton Hospital in Atlanta uh, inside Resurgence. And there's a tremendous amount of fractures and injuries that occur outside the academic centers. And what we found, um, and especially after I became president, uh, co-president of the group in Atlanta, is we kind of jumped on, uh, yeah, just bear with me a minute. I'm going to get a little esoteric on you. We jumped on Michael. <laughs> we jumped on, we, we were in a very competitive environment. Atlanta is a, if you, if you, if you read the book, uh, blue ocean strategy, it was a very red ocean. It was a tremendous amount of competition in Atlanta. It was extremely, and there was a lot of orthopedic surgeons. Everybody was trying to cut, you know, cut out a place and be where they could be. And for our, running our large group like ours, we were under constant threat of erosion uh, of our practice. And so after studying Michael Porter at the Harvard Business School, uh, I did my MBA at Auburn, but we were reading a lot of Porter's things. We decided that we would push along a unique practice pattern. So instead of everybody trying to be the best, which is a zero-sum game that nobody can ever accomplish, we said, let's, let's develop a unique opportunity for the patients on the corporate side and unique opportunities for the patients on the individual surgeon side. And in order to do that, if you imagine now that I'm looking at my sports medicine docs and foot and ankle and all those, you know, total joint arthroplasty, all those men and women saying, I need y'all to focus hard on trying to be, you know, to do what you do with extreme excellence and be developed a unique opportunity and offering for our patients they're like, yeah, that's great. But by the way, all these fractures are distracting us. What do we do with those? Enter the trauma surgeons. So then we were able to further develop a trauma service to where the trauma surgeons were busy all day long fixing fractures, which then freed up our individual specialists, not just to, not just to aggressively do what they do, but to do it well without distraction and removing that hindrance off of them and taking that obstacle out of the way. And so when you think of large practice or a medium-sized practice working in that matter, all of a sudden you see tremendous opportunity for people that do fracture and trauma surgery, because although many of us believe we do it all well, there's very, very few of us who actually can in reality. Um, and I think that if you really look at your stuff critically, the people who specialize exactly in the things that you're not specialized in probably are providing a better service to the patients than you are. And so we decided, hey, let's be really good at what we do and then transfer the patient to somebody else. So we would have patients who, you know, would say, who do I see for my knee? And it's like, well, what's wrong with your knee? Is it a sports injury? Is it a reconstruction injury uh, and, uh, issue? Or is it a fracture that you need one of the fracture surgeons to take care of? So that's kind of a circuitous answer to your question, but I think it's how you can really develop trauma services and very effective trauma care systems within private practices, allowing 
the specialists to thrive on what they do and not saying, I got to, you know, I fix ACLs, I fix cuffs, I put in knee arthroplasties, I do posterior tibial tendon transfers. But oh, by the way, I'm also going to have to go in and nail this femur. And I wonder how I, I think I can still fix posterior walls. I think I can do it. <laughs> no, no, I got right. it. You go do what you do. Tell me where the patient is. And I'll take care of it. Right. And uh, there are many different ways that I could, I could uh, many things I want to explore from what you just said. Uh, but I guess one of the first things that that we could touch base on is your first job in Colorado. You got from knowing somebody or, you know, they kind of introduced you to the group and told you about the opportunity. The second one was you coming, you know, looking back to moving into Georgia, moving to Atlanta. What were the conversations like with the group? Was it a cold call that, you know, did you reach out to somebody or what were those conversations like because you know we have a lot of people that may actually be looking and trying to figure out how they can actually get into somewhere or some city that they want to you know end up practicing and what was that like for you yeah that's a that's a good question so what it, the way i did it and the way i would tell people now may be somewhat different so i, I would mostly going through the academy website and the trauma association website just looking for opportunity there um and so i you know, those websites are tremendous drivers. They, they can promote a lot of opportunity to people, but that doesn't necessarily resonate with the person that says I grew up in blank or, you know, my wife or my husband is from blank and we want to go there. Then a lot of times it is a cold call situation and uh, that can be good. That can be bad. It depends on, on, on all how that works out. But Back when I was doing it, it was it was through the AOS and the OTAs websites. Okay, and one of the other things that you mentioned was you know you you were able to you know get a job there and get into a position of leadership, and you have your previous experience for your MBA, and you mentioned a couple uh, sources. The one that I've definitely heard of before, the Blue Ocean Strategy. I haven't read it; I've heard it many times, um, <laughs> so I, I should probably read it. And some of the workings of Michael Porter, but in your head um, or, in, or in your own brain, what was it like? Because, you know, you had to to lead, you know, this group and kind of cast a vision of, of excellence and everybody's being specialized in their own in their own areas. Um, what are some things that you learned that helped make you an effective leader during during your time? You know, what are some these may be different um different, you know, instances of where, where you notice like, oh, this is a quality of leadership that should be necessary, especially when you're talking about, you know, helping trying to manage and, you know, create a vision for other people in a practice. But what are some of those, you know, leadership qualities or, or stories or, you know, things of that sort? Well, wow, that's a great question. The, I think one of the big things that leaders should do is seek training it's kind of absurd for us to believe that we could do all the complex things that we do in the OR without training. We all know that's not possible. I mean, we've had decades of training before we were able to, you know, do things that we do in surgery. So it's kind of insulting on leaders for us to say, well, you know, and I'm probably look at all the stuff I've done. So I'm just going to step in and do this. We should seek out formal leadership training. And there's there's a whole plethora of it out there. Actually, you know, I started off in college. I went to a military uh, college. And so I was uh, very early uh, under the auspices of the U.S. Army and their leadership training programs that the Army had. Um, 
becoming an infantry officer uh, back when I graduated in 1986. Um, and there's a, a general path that goes along with that. Of course, the American Orthopedic Association is totally de- devoted and dedicated to training uh, leadership in orthopedic surgery and helping develop that. But I think, you know, when you, some of the things that I learned that you should always keep in mind when you are a leader in the organization is number one, try your best to listen and understand as many of the parts as you can. That that can be, that seems so obvious, but it can be so hard to do at times. Sometimes you think you know where you're going and you want to just jump in and do things. And it's much better just to say, all right, I'm going to hold off a minute. And as a trauma guy, right? We're just ready to jump in and do it. Like I need right. to slow down. I need to listen. I need to understand all the sides of it. And one of the great quotes that I remember from infantry school was imperturbable calm is the essence of the commander. So you have to remain calm. You have to keep your composure. And I certainly have failed at this many times, but you have to hold that together and go from there. One of the challenges, but one of the great things about resurgence, um, and you can throw orthopedics on the Rockies in there and probably almost any other private practice in the United States is that they are pretty much a shareholder model uh, for the company, which means that the all the shareholders, including the managing partner, president, whatever you want to call him or her, is equal to everybody else. And so he or she really does not have any authority over the other shareholders other than what the board will allow that person to have which can be quite limited compared to an employed model or a academic model where you have like a chair that says, this is where we're going and like it or not, we got to either do it or leave. Uh, in a private practice model, we go at, eh, I don't like what you're saying. You're out. Who's next. And then all of a sudden you're sitting back on the bench going, what just happened? So to effectively lead many times in the private practice, it's true leading. It's not commanding. It's not ordering. You actually have to find common ground and move people toward that. And the exciting thing about that, and I think one of the best things about it, is it makes you utilize different portions and ideas and transformational leadership to where you're casting a vision. Hey, y'all, look, if we can go here, can we agree that this is what the ideal orthopedic surgeon in our group should look like? Can you imagine, just, just think for yourself, if we were all heading in this direction, we were doing this, and we were offering this thing to the patients. How cool would that be when you went to the country club, went to church, went to synagogue and you, your, your friends and your family and people that you met heard that you worked there. How cool would that feel? What would that look like if your mom or your, your, you know, your, somebody in your family or your friends sought care in the office and called you up later on saying, Oh my gosh, the experience was incredible. And as you begin to cast this vision and, and get people unifying about it, and you start developing a caucus of people that are, that are sold out to the cause and are working along with it, and then together you mobilize this cause and you go through and do it, that's exciting. And we did some really, really, really cool things in resurgence. Um, and all, many times it was just, it was a, I had the best job because I got to sit there and watch these people buy into vision and move the needle forward. And it was just really, really cool because they were the ones doing it. They, they uh, adopted it, ran with it and came up with some really cool permutations of it. And that I believe was largely responsible. That was the reason uh, that there was a lot of success within resurgence. It was that the individual leaders at multiple levels and the surgeons and the staff bought into 
the vision that we could become. And then they actively became it. It was cool. And I think that's, that's what leaders should aspire to. On the other hand, there is a lot of energy and effort that goes into their sleepless times and stress and it can be really, really difficult, but on the other hand, it's worth it in the end because you can really accomplish some really great things together. Yeah. And, and you mentioned, I mean, you just, you just mentioned great things about, you know, casting a vision. And even when you were mentioning and saying, it, I was like, in my head, I was like, Oh, I wonder what, I wonder what, what it would be like for me, even though I'm not a part of, sure. a part of resurgence. Sure. And, you know, I think that's, that's great and a very important aspect about leadership, but do you have a time where, you were doing something and it wasn't working yet. It kind of had to switch, switch something around. And then you saw, okay, well maybe this, this worked, you know, like something that, that you saw that didn't work per se, that you had to switch things up. Wow. That's, that's a good question. So, you know, there are many times that we would go, and that was very important why you should have uh, friends and a diverse group of friends. Um. And I'll, I mean, I'll be pretty transparent on one of these things. So we, um, yeah, this, this is pretty transparent. This is pretty raw right here. So, you know, down in Atlanta, Atlanta is a very diverse city, uh, yep. many different um, people of very, very diverse backgrounds. I remember during MBA school at Auburn, we went to, to Copenhagen, Denmark to learn about the foreign, uh, you know, a lot of foreign medical systems. And we were in the secretary of health and human services for Denmark came and spoke to our class. And she was talking about the size of Denmark and people in Denmark and this, that, and the other thing. And I was listening to her. And then she said something that struck me. I said, I forget whatever size, whatever demographic she was talking about. I said, that's the same as Atlanta. And everybody in this country is white. They're all the same social background. They all go to the same church. They all have the same upbringing. They they're just, they're all the same thing. And you compare that to Atlanta, which was the exact polar opposite of that, where, you know, it's incredible the amount of diversity and different people that were there. So having said that, I was president of the group and we had a newer doctor uh, in the group that was doing something that I did not understand. And I was about to call them up and just light them up for what are you doing? <laughs> right. This makes no sense. You need to get on the train. As a new doctor to the uh, practice, and um, one of my very, very dear friends in the practice uh, is African-American. He's a great friend of mine. I'll call his name out. It's Gary Stewart. And Gary and I have been friends a long time. I think the world of Gary. And by the grace of almighty God, I thought, before you call that, maybe you should call Gary. Nah, I should just call him. No, just call Gary. Okay, I'll call Gary. So I called Gary up and I just blasted Gary. I'm like, Gary, look at this garbage and blah, 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 blah. And I just let Gary have, <laughs> that's what I'm going to tell him, call him and tell him and da, 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 da. Gary didn't say a word. I get done. I go, so what do you think? He goes, well, consider this. And in the next five to seven minutes, my jaw was hanging open. I'm like, oh my gosh, if I had not called Gary, I would have dug a hole so deep. I could not have climbed back out of it. And I mean, I was almost shaken by how much I had missed um, the object that was right in front of my face because of, I lacked the lens to see it because, you know, growing up and I grew up with many African-American friends and everything in the deep South. However, I didn't get what he was. I didn't get the issue until Gary explained it to me in plain English and having a great friend like Gary who understood my heart and that I wasn't trying to be anything other than 
open and communicative and good. He explained it to me in a way I could understand it. Then I was like, oh, got it. And then I immediately called that person with the advice Gary gave me, immediately got the response that I was, that I was looking for from that person. They, um, they immediately started behaving in the way that we wanted them to do by using Gary's techniques and not the hellfire and brimstone that I was going to use. And so it's things like that. I think it's very important to have trusted colleagues that you can go to that are transparent, that are not going to judge you, that are going to let you say what you need to say and then go and, and say it in a way that have the wisdom to say, have you considered this? What about this? And then you have the wisdom to listen and readjust and go, okay, maybe I don't have it right. Maybe I need to listen to you and do it your way. And it's, it's, it's worked. And that's, that's always a thing is I always feel very, if you can put off a decision and get trusted advice and counsel, you should, of course, if you need to act decisively do it. But I think there's many times, and that was one that came to mind. Yeah. And I think that, again, that just makes a, that shows one of the important points is that one that you even thought to call somebody to get advice. Cause you know, like a lot of people may not call or, you know, not, they may think that they're right all the time, you know? And so it's good to know that, you know, we're not right hundred percent of the time. Let's get somebody else's opinion and thoughts on it. So uh, I think that shows a level of retrospect or, you know, I guess the level of insight that you have into yourself and kind of the, the situation I was at hand. I know doc, Dr. Stewart's awesome. I remember, uh, I think I was maybe a first year med student when I, when I met him, uh, but you know, he, he, he's great. And I know he was part of your practice and, and that, that may be a good, a good transition to, you know, what are the, the different types of, of practice? Cause you mentioned a little bit earlier about, you know, you're having patients that come in that may need some sports, you know, a, a knee problem that may have a sports problem, but they may have an arthroplasty problem, but they may have a fracture problem, which are three different, you know, three different specialties. And so when we're looking at, uh, when we're looking at trying to join a practice, some type of a, you know, some type of a private practice in general, what are some of the different types of private practices that you can consider to join? Yeah. Let me step back one second, uh, uh, to it. Uh, uh, one thing that I used to always tell my directors and the people that were right under me under the presidential line at resurgence was don't tell me what I want to hear. Tell me what I need to know. Right. And you got to be careful because people will say, well, you know, we know what he wants to hear. So it's going to say, no, don't tell me that I want to know. And I would call them out and almost push them to the point where they, cause you could tell sometimes that they were holding back and make them just take the gloves off and go, all right, fine. Let's go behind this closed door. And I'm going to tell you exactly what I think. I'm like, finally, how the heck am I going to learn and do it right? If you don't sure. tell me. And eventually you develop their trust to where they could come in the hallway and go, Hey, we need to talk. Awesome. And you may, and it hurts. You don't want to hear it. You want to hear all the time how awesome you are. But if you're smart, you'll listen to the people that'll tell you the truth going right now. You are not awesome. Matter of fact, you are pretty bad. And I need to tell you what you're doing wrong. You know, super important to have people that again, you can trust and that can go that you can build that trust with them that lets them know that they can come to you not only with good news, but also with bad news and that, you know, you don't treat them negatively or have a negative reaction to when they tell you something bad, but to learn that it's more like, you know, this is a, a learning experience. We're all trying to get better. You can't just tell me good things all the time. No, I'm not 100% good all the time. <laughs> you tell me things I need to work on as well. Yeah. Um, and I've all to your, to your next question. I've, I've always thought about that. I think if you've seen a private practice, you've seen one private practice. I think 
there are many ways that they are similar, but I think they all have different flavors and different ways that they work uh, completely across the country. Some of it is based on local culture. Some of it is based on the history of the group. Some of it is based on uh, local and uh, statewide laws and regulations and how practices can be led and what can be inside a practice and under the, the scope of the law, what you're allowed to do in that practice uh, versus in other states, what you could do something different. So there's, so if you had to look back at it, you've seen a private practice, you've seen one private practice, and you can't assume that they're all like that. Generally speaking, though, you can say that most of the private practice models tend to be equity shareholder models to where uh, after a period of employment, uh, people should be allowed to buy in to the practice itself and then distribute the common uh, revenue that's coming into the group uh, in a fair and equi equitable way, and then also uh, actually own the assets of the company itself. And this is completely different than in um, employed models or academic models. One of the advantages of private practice is well-led. And if, if, if anything, private practice screams out, you got to have good, effective, solid leadership at the top. I would even go as far to say, and I may get some brushback from some of my friends on this. I think that less effective leaders are better tolerated in academics and employed models because the leaders superior to them can kind of keep them in line and overrule some of the dumb things that they may or may not do. Whereas in private practice models, if the person leading the group or the board leading the group has poor leadership and can't get it right, the practice tanks or suffers significantly as a result of it, or on the other hand, is extraordinarily effective and becomes a, a mighty force in the region uh, and is extremely agile and able to adjust to changing circumstances much quicker than the other models can. So it's an interesting thing and it's a very different thing. Um, there are many things that I think I would look for. Uh, when I was looking at private practice opportunities. Um, but in terms of just the different types, I think those are the three main ones. Of course, there's government you know, work. You, know, you can easily work for the government in many different ways uh, through the armed forces or through the uh, Secretary of Health and Human Health, I'm sorry, the Department of Health and Human Services or CMS or through statewide agencies and things like that. Um, but I think those are the big, the big ones overall is academics, which is an employed model, employed models, and then of course, private practice, which is still the majority of orthopedic surgeons in the country are still in private practice. And, and so with that, what are some of the things that just like you just said that you would look at if you're looking at a, you know, given, you know, and you have years of experience now. So given, say you're back in our shoes, say, you know, you're, you're just feeling this fellowship and you're looking at private practice, you've heard how great it is. And now you're trying to figure out what you should look for. I know you just mentioned, you know, these uh, different type of equity models where you have may have an X amount of years before you're able to buy in and get be a partner in that in that practice. Um, but what are some of the things you would look for now? Okay, so if I was coming into an area, and I was looking for a practice, I would first of all, learn as much as I could about that practice from their website, and from websites around it, in the community, read everything and anything I could find about it there, trying to understand the relationship they have with the hospitals, with the payers, with 
different things like that and get an understanding for it. When you go to interview there, I would, I would be very careful to understand the leadership structure of the group, uh, who makes the decisions, how much autonomy that person has versus uh, autonomy of the individual doctors, and how does that look across the board from there. The process to shareholder status is extremely important. What does it take for me to become a shareholder should be very, very clear. If it's, well, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll get you in and we'll kind of, you know, I'm sure, I'm sure once everything goes well, we'll just work it out. I would not walk. I would run away from that. <laughs> they should have that listed out very carefully. You know, this is what it takes. They should be able to describe it very, very well. It should be codified. And I am not a big get it in writing kind of guy, but that's something I would get in writing. I would, I would say, you know, what's, what's the process toward becoming a shareholder? And then what exactly am I buying into? You know, what does my buying consist of? Am I paying goodwill? I, there could be times where you should pay goodwill. There are times that people say goodwill is always bad. I think that that can be, that could be a little, uh, that could be a little naive. I think there are times where goodwill may be indicated, you know, what assets am I buying into? How are they valued and how do those things go? Of course, this is not a first sit down discussion. If you do that on the first, the first interview, they're probably going to show you the door going, wow, man, you were getting the cart <laughs> way in front of the horse there. But right. before you'd buy in, I would get, I'm oh, sorry, you signed the con the employment contract to go from there. I'd make sure that path was crystal, crystal clear. If you look at most contracts, a lot of the language in the contract is how to get out of the contract. And that's a very important thing. You need to know the restrictive covenants. How far do I have to move if I leave here? Uh, before you, you know, where would, how far do I have to get out before you would sue me? If I set up practice over there, you got to understand how is that just even very simple things. How is that distance quantified? Is it, is it in a radius? Is it by the most common way that we would put into ways and we would figure out how to drive there? What does that mean? And of course it's very different if you're in sports medicine and the, if you're in a big city and the restrictive covenant is five miles, that's probably pretty doable, right? You could probably move six miles down the road, set up your office there, work at a surgery center outside that five mile radius and be extremely successful. If you're a trauma surgeon, you pretty much got to leave cities or move mm. to the separate part of the city because you know, you can't, you need to work where the trauma is and there's not going to be another trauma center five in most places in the country. Some places have it, but there's not going to be a trauma center six miles down the road that you can work there. It's going to be, you know, 15, 20 miles. And that may be far enough that you have to move your house. So you need to understand restrictive covenants. You need to understand the term. How long is it for, uh, you know, when, and then when that's done, what, what happens then? How does that work? Do I immediately become a shareholder? Do we have to renegotiate this? How does that go? If I was coming straight out of fellowship, I would ask the horrible and awkward question. Hey, listen, I passed part one. I'm sorry. Suppose I'm out of my fellowship. Okay. And now I'm looking for a job. I would sit down there going, Hey, I passed part one. I have every intention in the world. That I'm going to pass part two, but I've had friends that have not. And you can just say that whether you do or you don't. What happens if I don't pass part two the first time around? You guys mm. kick me out. Do you give me a chance to come back around it? And they may not put that in writing, but they may say, look, you know, we've had that happen. Bill, that happened with Jane and Bill and we worked with them. And now look, now they're here and they're very happy and everything's going. They should be very 
open to give you contact information on the very newest employee doctors and the very newest shareholders for you to talk to them without them listening, the leadership listening and, and do that. Whenever I would hire new orthopedic surgeons, or I would put a contract out, I said, listen, I'm going to give you the name of the last three or four doctors that we employed and the last three or four that became shareholders. Here's their emails. Here's their cell. Call them. Don't include me on the email. You ask them everything and ask them specifically this question. Did I lie to them when I was bringing them in? Did I give them everything that I told them I would get them? And the people would look at me like, you really want me to ask you that? I'm like, yeah. And that's how much we believe in it. One thing that I wrote in Journal of Orthopedic Trauma one time that was uh, shocking to me, I was at a trauma symposium and two very good friends of mine uh, who are about my age were up on the podium blasting uh, private practice saying that all private practice doctors wanted you to do was all they wanted to do was get you in, work you like a dog for two years and then throw you out and get the next meat in there and you do the same thing over again. And I was about having a a hypertensive crisis listening to this. <laughs> and I told the organizer, yeah. I said, this is garbage. And uh, she said, well, fine, you talk next year. I said, I will. Thank you for inviting me. So what I did, the way I approached it was I said, listen, let's look at this from a common sense standpoint. If you spin the table, if you go to work at you know Sunshine Orthopedics or whatever group it is, within three to four years, you are probably going to be sitting on the other side of the table which is a period of time shorter than your residency, looking at some man or woman on the other side of the table who's just out of fellowship and convincing them why they should work there. If that's true, what is that person thinking? Are they thinking they want to churn and burn you and throw you away after two years? That doesn't make any sense at all, right? Do you have any idea how much it costs to recruit, train, and onboard an orthopedic surgeon? Why would you go through that over and over again? You can see people's eyes going, yeah, that does make a lot of sense. And I wrote an article about that in Journal of Orthopedic Trauma, talking about the other side of the table, you know, and the example I used in the talk was if you ask the president of the United States, what he or she thought of the job uh, 90 days after they got it versus the day before they stepped into the office, I bet it would be a very different thing. And so, and then in retrospect, when they looked at it, they would probably say, I should have seen what this job was like because I could see it from the outside now. I just couldn't see it while I was there. Well, I think it's the same thing when you're emerging as a finishing your fellowship or your residency, and you really have no idea how it feels to be on the other side of the table. Well, just, just try to think about it. Say, if I was on the other side of the table, if I was trying to recruit orthopedic surgeons, what would I say? What would I be looking for? What would I want? And you're probably pretty close to being right. Hmm. Okay. Uh, a couple of things to follow up um, from what you said. Well, one, what do you mean by goodwill? Is this is this the money that you make the practice that, you know, I, I'm not 100% sure. What, so what is it? What do you mean by goodwill? So suppose um, we had, uh, let's just suppose, uh, you know, if you picked like Jimmy Andrews practice. Okay. And sure. I don't, I don't know if Dr. Andrews has goodwill or not, but if I was, if, if Dr. Andrews say, listen, I want you to join my practice. And I want you to bring in there. And I have no idea if Jimmy, Dr. Andrews has goodwill or not. But if he said, you know, we're going to expect you to pay this goodwill, I would say, well, you probably should. And what goodwill means is, listen, by stepping into the practice, you are going to become much more successful than if you tried to hang your shingle up next door to me and compete with me. Because my name and my practice permeates the community. Just turn on ESPN Sports Center and you hear his name all the time. That's worth something. 
So if I'm going to get that huge advantage in being part of his group, I should probably have to pay something for that. And that's what goodwill would be. It's, it's the, the goodwill, the, and if you go to like in my group in Colorado, uh, that was very, very well considered in Northern Colorado. Everybody really had a lot of respect for orthopedic center of the Rockies. They still do. And so to join OCR with all the, the established good will that they had developed in the community, you should have to pay into that in order to be part of it rather than just take advantage of all the work they've done and all the good name and, Hey, I'm here. So I'm just going to jump on board. Some people think that that's bad, that you should never have to do that, but I could see certain circumstances why that would happen. On the other hand, it's got to have some value, right? If I'm some Yahoo in a big city that I really don't have, I haven't done anything to make my name or my practices brand unique yet I'm claiming it is, then I don't deserve any goodwill. At that point, it's like, look, you know, I need help. We're an emerging practice. We're an average practice. Nobody's, you know, knocking down the door to come see us. We're just one of many groups in the city. Then you shouldn't be paying any extra money to join that. It should be based on the assets of the company. Okay. Okay. That makes sense. And that can be anywhere from like a fixed price to a percentage of income, or is it just normally typically a fixed price that you pay yearly? I've seen it as a fixed price. Uh, what they'll do is they'll say, hey, look, you know, we, we feel that the work that we've put in, it's a very arbitrary thing, is X. And then one of your questions would be, all right, has everybody else paid that? And of course, they're going, oh, yeah, yeah, they have. And then you go, great. Okay, fine. And then when you talk to that new shareholder that just bought in, hey, what'd you pay in goodwill? And if they give you a number materially different from yours, you might want to ask for some explanations, or you may want to go, okay, I've heard enough. I'm looking somewhere else. You guys are playing games. There could be a reason behind it. So you may want to ask him, or you may go, this just confirms my bias that y'all are taking advantage of me. And I don't want any part of that. So there are and, groups that would, that's why you have to be pretty savvy about it. And you, uh, and you mentioned one of the things that you definitely want to have in your contract written down is how to be a partner or, you know, a shareholder, like the things that make that happen, you know, in whatever practice that is, what are, um, I guess, what's a good, like a general time, I mean, you know, like it is, is a year to be um, shareholder too soon is two years a good time. Like in general, just like on average, you know, how does somebody know like, oh, okay, 10 years, like, oh, that's the norm. Everybody does 10 years to be a shareholder versus it being three or four years, you know, is there a general time period? So in my experience, many groups will make you a shareholder <clears throat> contingent on two activities that occur. One is you getting into the black financially. And the second one is you becoming board certified. So, you know, generally speaking, in most private practice models, when you come in to the practice, you immediately start assuming expenses, right? So you're paying your share. You have your share of the overhead that is now being allocated to you. You may not be paying it, but it's being allocated to you. It's their divide. So your share of the rent, your share of the power bill, your share of the cleaning service, your share of you pay your MA, your share of the front office staff, your share of the medical malpractice insurance, medical liability insurance, all that your your that is being allocated to you. So your numbers on the income statement of the practice are progressively getting into the red or into the negative side. And then you start seeing patients, you start operating, you submit bills, but the money doesn't come in except for Medicare 
money doesn't come in overnight. It takes a while for the blues and Cigna and all the companies to send the payments in. So you're continuing to fall deeper and deeper into the red. And then before, this is the way that most of the groups I've seen have done it. Then before long, you start collecting money. Your your collectors are, are bringing cash in. And this now, of course, stops the fall into the red. It hopefully plateaus out and then hopefully starts to climb back towards zero. And then once you cross zero, once you've made enough money to cover all of the expenses that you have incurred until you started, since you started, now you're in, quote, the black. The numbers are now black rather than red. So uh, we would track our our, our partners, our doctors out, uh, get them as busy as fast as we could, try to limit their expenses as much as we possibly could, and get them into the black. Now, there's other part, other groups do it differently. Some groups say, we're not even going to track that. You've got to be making this much money or seeing this be this productive or whatever. So there's different ways to measure productivity. The red and black is, is a very common way because private practices are just small businesses and you've got to stay afloat. You've got to make the cash work or you go under. The other thing is, is that what is the practices stipulations on board certification within the United States of America, even though the being board certified by the American board of orthopedic surgery, the American osteopathic board of orthopedic surgery is truly voluntary. And it is the flip side of that coin is there is very difficult to practice in many locales. If you're not board certified, if you don't have that piece of paper on your wall, you can't get privileges at surgery centers or hospitals or even get on certain payer contracts. They view it as a, a minimal barrier, a minimal obstacle to quality that you would have to do before you did that. So you can imagine if we let somebody in in a year, so suppose they're new, you know, from a financial standpoint, they're now flush with us. They're, they're now in black numbers. Okay, cool. And we say he's, he or she's a great person. Let's let them in. And we let them in and then they fail the boards. Like, okay, great. Now we've got a shareholder who's not board certified. What are we going to do? We're going to, well, obviously we're going to let them take it again. They take the board again and they fail a second time. Now we're looking at each other going, you know, this would have been a lot easier if we had left them employed because if we had left them employed, we go, you know, look, Bubba, things ain't working out. You're probably going to have to move along rather than you got a shareholder that now all of a sudden you've got to execute a whole lot of caveats in the shareholders agreement to get this person out or the person goes, well, I'm not leaving. Well, you got to leave. You're not board certified. Make me fire me. And now you're like, Oh my gosh, how do we get into this? Whereas if it's an employed model, you can make a contingent. If you're not board certified, you know, and you fail the first time and say, okay, we're going to renew your contract, but you got to pass this time. And if they fail, you go, Hey, we're not going to renew your contract. I'm sorry. You're going to have to go look elsewhere. Um, So those are, so generally speaking, it usually lands around the two-year mark because it takes two years to get board certified. And it generally takes two years for most of us to get comfortably in the black to where the practice says, okay, you can hold your own financially and you're board certified. So if somebody came up and said, Hey, I got a 10 year path to becoming board certified run. Don't walk away. From <laughs> Don't <contract>. do that. <laughs> if somebody says a year, you might say, all right, that's great. But you may look at it and go, you know, God forbid, if I don't pass part one, or suppose you're, you know, you're comfortable, you think you're going to pass part one. Well, what about the next Yahoo y'all bring in that, you know, you, you were desperate in some specialty and you brought some 
guy or some woman in, and then all of a sudden they're struggling passing the exam. And you're like, oh my gosh, what, what problems have we caused ourselves by having this ridiculous short period in our contract? Two years is pretty, pretty standard and pretty reasonable. Okay. So contingent on board certification. You got to get the piece of paper, be in the black and have the board, have that, have that paper on your board, on your wall. Okay. And, and really quick, what is a, since you mentioned it, you know, we're talking about different overhead and, and being in the black, what is a, what is an overhead? I don't know if you, maybe you do it by percentages or actual numbers. What is an overhead that you'll hear somebody saying, you're like, run, run away from that. That doesn't make any sense. You know, you shouldn't be paying that much in overhead coming straight out of practice versus saying, okay, that's typically kind of reasonable for, you know, the practice that you're joining and a different expense that you may have. Are there, are there, is there, are there numbers or is it a percentage of, you know, of income necessarily that you would think of? It's a percentage. Now, the problem with it is, is you're paying for something for that overhead. So we can run overhead down and we can get it low. And we're working out of really C-rated facilities, old dumpy facilities. We're taking the medical assistants and the staff that nobody else will hire because we're paying them so little. Our medical liability insurance is terrible because it's the cheapest thing that we can find out there. So it may cover us most of the time, at least we hope. And so you can run it really low, buying really cheap stuff and hoping for the best. On the other hand, I've had partners that gold-plated everything. They would walk down the hallway and they would like have an entourage of all the people that they hired to be around them. Like, Mm -hmm. you really need all those people? Yes, and I'm happy to pay for them. Okay, knock yourself out. And so their overhead would be very high. So it depends, you know, and then you can, you can get a very, very ritzy practice, you know, where you're looking at the, the, the real estate that you're in, you're like, wow, this is really super expensive marble and granite. And the patients walk in there and going, Oh my gosh, you know, how much does this cost mahogany and all that rather than a, you know, a dumpy rundown place with tired carpet and all. And then you could say, I'm, I know I don't want to hire medical assistants. I want all RNs to work here. I need to get the best for my patients and do all that. And then your overhead will be astronomically high. So generally, so that, so really a lot overhead is what you're paying for. That's what it is. It's not a, now there are practices that are wasteful and they have bad contracts. They pay too much for things or they pay for dumb things that you don't need. And then that would be wasteful overhead. So generally speaking, a good percentage of overhead is between 40 and 50%. Uh, sometimes it can be a little higher than 50. Be careful about applying that to the huge groups though, because in the huge groups, even though you do get some degree of benefit by spreading out central or corporate costs over a whole bunch of doctors, as you get into big groups, big groups start to bring on added benefits for the doctors that the small groups don't have. So when you go into the huge mega groups like resurgence, like a lot of the other big groups in the country that uh, we were associated with through the forum, when you get these huge, massive mega groups, when you get these huge, massive mega groups, what you find is that they will have offerings and benefits for the practicing doctors that the small groups could never have, like risk managers, like lawyers that work for the practice to keep you out of hot water if you, you know, from getting sued. And if you get sued to quickly circle the wagons and help you out and take care of that. 
Um, you have people that are doing coding and compliance to make sure that you don't get crosswise with Center for Medicare and Medicaid services and get in trouble with them. And so you're paying for things that smaller practices may not offer, but that is a benefit to you that the leadership of the group may say, yes, your overhead is going to be a little higher, but to protect us as the corporate we, we need to have these people on the payroll to protect us and to make sure that we stay tight. And so uh, I would look for somewhere from 40% up to the low 50s. If it's materially significantly more than that, you may ask them why, where, where is that overhead going? And it may be, you know, we agree, but man, the shareholders really wanted to work in this beautiful place in the city. We told them they wanted it anyway, fine. So we got them what it was and now they're paying for it. And you're like, okay, I don't know if I like the way you guys manage that. Y'all should have figured out a way around that. Uh, but if they can effectively explain where the cost is, then it's probably, I don't know if I would be too hyper critical of the amount they pay. Generally speaking, if a group is poorly managed and the overhead crawls up too high, the group fractures and everybody leaves. Mm, okay. Okay. So it's good to kind of know, like, I know I've read the term, like the philosophy of the group or kind of how they manage the group. And um, absolutely. Okay. Totally so great. that's a good thing. It's great. Great and, point. And you mentioned, you know, bad contracts. What are some, like, what are the things to definitely avoid on contracts? You see these, you run, you know, you, you know, like this is not a, you know, this is definitely not what you want in your contract or these terms are terms that we don't, that you should, you should get those out. Those should be different terms or what, what are some things you definitely want to avoid uh, when you're looking at signing a contract? So the contract by definition for the employment contract by definition is to protect the corporation and not you, right? I mean, so if it looks crooked and one-sided, it's supposed to be that way. Um, the shareholders contract should protect the corporation, but also protect the individual shareholder. And one of the things I always say is like, for instance, your homeowners association, everybody hates their HOA. I have this talk I give. Everybody hates their HOA until your neighbor does this. And I flip it and there's this bright pink house with purple shutters <laughs> until your neighbor decides to paint his or her house that. Now your HOA is your best friend. They can't do that. You can't tell them they can't paint their house that. Yet the second you decide you want to put a fence up or a basketball goal up and the HOA comes by going, you violate the rules, then you're cussing them and yelling at them for you know infringing on your rights. But you're happy to infringe on the rights of your neighbor to paint their house pink. So the shareholders contracts walk a line saying, we believe that this is where the line, we as shareholders believe this is where the line is that protects both the corporation's interests and my interests, because in many ways, they're going to be mutually exclusive and opposites of each other. When you're talking about the employment contract, that's an interesting thing. And the reason I bring up both of them is one thing I would ask is I would say, how similar is the employment contract to the shareholders agreement? So in two years, if I become a shareholder and I sign the shareholders agreement, is it, is it a reminiscent shadow of this one? Or is that a completely different document? One thing. The second thing I would ask is how negotiable is this contract? And I'm going to say something that may surprise you a little bit. I would look for a contract that can't be negotiated except for very minor points. Okay. Because what that means then is we treat everybody the same. And one of the great things about the resurgence shareholder agreement was every single one was the same. 
everybody's with very, very minor differences. And I would have guys and, you know, on our employment contract was really the mirror of the shareholders contract without the shareholder language in it. So the way we divided up revenue that you earned and all those things was exactly the same. And we, I would tell people when they became shareholders, I said, don't look for much because the only thing they really got was the ancillary bump that was required by Medicare for us to share equally rather than on, a, on an individual basis. So it wasn't a significant increase in income that people got once they became shareholders. So you want to make sure that, that the contracts are, you know, are fair, that everybody signs the same one. And then it's pretty similar to the shareholders contract, because if it is, then you know that they've found, the, as you said before, the philosophy of the group. This is where we believe the junction of the rights of the individual and the rights of the corporation cross. Other things you want to look for is, is fairness of, of getting out of the contract. And that's the big thing you should look at. Nobody wants to think about that when you're walking in, but it's really a prenup, right? You're trying to say, how do I get out of this if things don't work out? So you want to know. Number one, how much notice do I need to give? And what happens if I don't give it? It should be a fair period of time that allows the corporation to respond. On the other hand, it can't be so long that you are held in, in some kind of a bad situation. Because once you decide to leave, the rest of the time, you're, once you make the announcement that you're leaving, if the rest of the time you're at that practice, it's extraordinarily awkward. It's just not a fun place. <laughs> I can <be>. imagine. <laughs> So generally it's about 45 to 60 days once you announce, or it could be as much as 90 days, but it's anywhere between 45 and 90 days. If it's much more than that, I would, I would really think it twice. Second thing is the uh, restrictive covenant. How far outside the restrictive of here can I work? And then it's always nice to have language in there and say, if I violate the, con the restrictive covenant, how is that adjudicated? What is it? Amount of money? Is it a percentage of some type of revenue? How does that work? A very important thing is how in private practice world, how do we divide the revenue that we gain on the ancillary services, whether it's DME, radiology, physical therapy, MRI, or surgical surgery centers, stuff like that. How do we divide that revenue? Um, is Do I have to buy in separately in order to get a, access to that revenue? How is that buy-in calculated? Is it a percentage of of assets or is it a percentage of um, accounts receivable or something like that? How does that work? And what you're, and if, even if you don't understand these things, what you're looking for across the board is overall fairness. You know, is it, is it a reasonable, fair thing? And you have to think about it from their perspective. If you, because the second you buy in, you can't say, I mean, it's inappropriate to say, all right, you know, you guys let me in with no strings attached and I could basically just be a bad citizen and still get in. But now that I'm in, we need to really tighten up so that the next clown that gets in doesn't get to take advantage of the company like I could have. You don't want that. You want to, if you realize that the company is carefully protecting itself, that might be the good company to be in, right? You may go, hey, right. this is a good company because they're, they're tight and they're worried about making sure that they take care of their business. So um, the, the timing of the, sorry, the, 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 the radius or the, the distance on the restrictive covenant and the length of time that it's enforced. So many times it's depending on how far you are, you know, what kind of community you live in. If you're in, in rural area, the restrictive covenant is going to be a pretty chunk, big chunk of change. It's going to be, you know, 15, 20, 30, 40, 50 miles. It could be if it's 
in a big city, uh, like if it was in Atlanta or something, five miles is more than enough. Because if you've been to Atlanta, five miles at the wrong time of day can be an hour yeah. easily. And For so sure. they can really, that, that can really be an effective thing there. Uh, the, like I said before, the path, holder to sh- the path to shareholder status is very important. Also, what are the things that I can be fired for cause and fired for without cause? So fired for mm, cause okay. should be egregious stuff. You know, you lose your DEA number, you lose your license, you are charged with a felony. Uh, you are, you know, whatever, you know, if they say we got, we can let you go without cause. Well, you know, th- flip the, flip the shoe on the other foot. If I was in charge of the practice and somebody came in and was charged with a felony or lost their Medicare license or sorry, their Medicare privileges, or whatever, should I be able to fire them? You would hope you could, you don't want that right. person in the group still. And then what are the things that are fired, uh, without cause? And then, you know, how does that go and what does that mean? And like a lot of it can be pretty soft stuff, but that's okay. It protects the group. It can kind of go from there. You may want to ask uh, the last five doctors that left the group, what was the circumstances around it? And many times they can't, if it's HR related stuff, they can't be very specific, uh, but they can say it was an HR issue or, you know, but if you see a frequent pattern of a whole lot of people leaving you may want to scratch your head on that one and, and think twice. And a lot of times you may not get the answer you want. Mm-hmm. That kind of goes back to the thing you asked earlier about what if nobody in your community, that community you want to go to or the place you want to go is not hiring and you're interested. What I would do is I would look at that as a PGY four and no later than as early PGY five. So if I wanted to come back, to a community where, or come to a community, especially come back to a community that I grew up in or my, my spouse grew up in. And I want to say, Hey, listen, I need to, we want to work, live there. So I want to work at this group. I would start reaching out to them early saying, Hey, I'm going to do a total joint arthroplasty fellowship. I'm going to do a trauma fellowship, foot and ankle, whatever. I'm going to just not do a fellowship and be general. And I plan to graduate here. I would love to work with y'all how can we make this happen and just put the bug in your their ear and then gently and politely be persistent. You know, don't email and text the leader every day. Oh my gosh. <laughs> but on the flip side, you know, put it in your calendar routinely going, Hey, I'm still out here respectfully would love to discuss opportunities with you. If you get to that point. And then what happens because the worst thing you can have happen is decide, you know, halfway through your fellowship. Okay. I'm going to reach out to, you know, Marietta, Georgia, where I was from and uh, where I was practicing in and, and apply to be a trauma surgeon and the leader go, where were you, man? We, we just hired somebody last week. If we had known you were interested, we would have held you a spot. If you reach mm. out late in your four year, early in your five year, a lot of few practices are looking that far ahead. Some of them are, but you get ahead of the ball on that and they may go, Hey, and this is, this is what you think about once again, flip the shoe. If you're the leader of the group and you're going, you know, especially like if you're in Marietta, Georgia, you're looking at you going, we've got two people on the list. I've got a guy that can come this year who's from New York. And he doesn't have any connections to the South. He thinks he wants to be in the South. He doesn't know what the South is about. We have no idea who this clown is. He talks funny. Or we can hold off a little longer and get one of these local people. And by the way, they're coming no matter what. Do we want to work it for us or work for the competition? Because they're coming here. Right. All of a sudden, you become the favored person. Uh-huh. 
if you do, if you, if you have that, you feel, Hey, look, I'm coming. I want to come. I am coming to the community. I want to work with you. What that is, is a veil threat shot across my bow going, if you don't hire me, I'm going to be your competition. I'm really motivated. And do you really want that? Or do you want to work with me? And uh, I've had to now be careful and be extraordinarily polite. Nobody likes to be manipulated and pushed around, but that can be a, a symbol that a thing that you throw out there. Those are all, Dr. Lund, those are all excellent and great <laughs> tips. I'm, I'm gonna done this a long time, this. hired a lot of people and seen a lot of stuff. I'm like, oh my gosh, well, I wish I had known that earlier. Oh man, I'm going to re-listen to this and uh, take some notes for sure. And But w- one of the things you mentioned was, um, you know, you want, uh, uh, overarching theme is that you want the contracts to be fair. And one of the things that you mentioned, you want it to be generally non-negotiable, except for minor changes. What are some of those minor things that you'd be like, okay, this is, this can be changed here. Like what are some of those minor things that fall into that category? So a lot of that could be stuff that you do outside of the general scope of practice of the practice. So like, for instance, if you are in private practice, they generally don't put a lot of stock into leadership, uh, scholarly work, presenting research, you know, training and education efforts. They think it's nice. And I'm being a little, I hope I'm not being too sardonic because I was in private practice for 21 years doing all those things. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, and in fairness to the practice, they let me know straight up, Hey, look, if you want to do it, that's great. That makes us look really good that you do that. We're not going to pay you a cent for it, nor are we going to give you any time to do it. Right. Like, Oh, okay. That's okay. fair. Yeah. Thanks for being honest. Uh, but then I knew one of the things that I also recognized, and I wrote a paper on this in clinical orthopedics is please, please, please don't go into a group to change it. It's like you hear sometimes people, you're going to get married. I'm going to get married so I can change him or her. Don't just leave him alone. Marry the right person. Don't marry somebody you're going to change. Don't go into a group and go, okay, now I want to change the, the uh, compensation formula, how we allocate overhead and how we pay out revenue. That blows groups up for right or for wrong. The group's got it made. So for instance, at orthopedic center of the Rockies, they divided surgery center revenue equally among the shareholders. So even though I was a very low producer at the surgery center, they said, because you're a trauma surgeon, you're keeping our highly elective surgeons out of the trauma suite and over here in the ASC making money. So we feel that you earn part of it. That was the philosophy of the group. At resurgence, it was like, no, you didn't provide anything for the ASC. You're not getting a cent from the ASC. And both models are absolutely fine. And both models are absolutely fair. The key is to understand the model and go, I can live with that or I can't. I obviously lived very well with both models. And the whole time I was with resurgence, you know, I could have advocated to go, hey, listen, I do all the stuff to get your ambulatory doctors into the ASC to operate and make all this, you know, extra revenue doing that and try to change the formula, but it's not fair. It's not right. They, I came in knowing what the rules were and it's my, it's inappropriate for me to go, well, now it's unfair. So now I need to change it. If you thought it was unfair, you shouldn't have joined. And so people try to blow up groups by trying to change stuff down midstream because suddenly they get the sense of fairness that they're being, you know, disenfranchised in some way, shape or form. Well, you probably knew that coming in. So in fairness to the group, understand what their philosophy is. And if you don't like it, don't go there. Don't join them and try to change them later on. After I get in, I'm going to get a, you know, a group of 
of my partners together and we're going to try to change this. Don't just go somewhere else. So other minor changes would be stuff that you do on the side. So any research stuff that you do, if you have any patents, that's cool. If you do a lot of times the stuff on the side are medical legal stuff. So giving depositions, giving uh, expert testimony, doing IMEs. Now, many private practice groups, if you're doing a lot of expert testimony stuff, they're not going to be really too favorable about that because you could be casting them in a light that they don't want to be cast in. But all that stuff should be, hey, that's your money. You don't have to run it through the overhead mill. If you want to go do that stuff, it's yours. If you want to make money teaching courses or, or um, um, consulting arrangements with industry, for instance, if you have a deal with a with synthes that you get paid X amount of money to help them develop femoral nails and stuff that should come straight to you and not go, not go through the overhead machine of the corporation because the corporation really had nothing to do with that. Oh, that, that all makes sense. I think you just, you dropped a lot of great gems on, on contracts, different types of uh, practice models, questions to ask. And, and the last, pretty much the last question I have to, to wrap up here. That's like, I guess, topic you could say is, you know, um, you've been, very active in multiple organizations throughout your career, um, active, you know, president of your private practice and then, you know, ABOS, uh, you know, OTA, a lot of different organizations and you have a family. How did you, how did you integrate those two? How did you balance those two? What did it look like? Anything that you, that you made sure, you know, had to be done every week or, you know, just, just curious. How did you, how did you figure that out? Uh, I probably balanced it poorly. Uh, married a great woman that, you know, we have two great sons that really uh, turned out fantastic, uh, probably in spite of what I did rather than because of anything I did. One of the things that struck me is um, when I was uh, president of the Georgia Orthopedic Society, I had a friend of mine who was a orthopedic surgeon that I had known a long time who was now past the time of retirement and was still hanging on, even though he could imminently retire almost any day. And I was president of GOS, Georgia Orthopedic Society. And he came up to me and he grabbed me and he said, oh my gosh, I've, I have not been involved. I really see the value of what's going on. You've got to get me on the board of GOS so I can get involved. And I remember how horrible that sounded. And I then reflected that I saw several partners of mine that couldn't retire they just couldn't walk away. And sometimes it can be a rather pathetic thing. And it's one of those things that you're like, gosh, I mean, from such an honorable and respected person now to this point that everybody knows they should walk away and go do something else. And they just won't leave. And we know it's not a financial thing. We know they're well invested and everything's going well. It's just, it's almost like they, they didn't do enough. And I started really thinking about that. And as I thought about it, and I wrote this up in clinical orthopedics again, is that I think that every orthopedic surgeon should consider four things early in their career. Because if you think about it, you four years of college, four years of medical school, five years of residency, a year of fellowship, two years later, you pass the board. The year after that, you join the academy and you join your specialty society. And then nothing. You just mm. put your head down, you work. And then eight years 10 years later, you lift your head up and the ABOS is tapping you on the forehead going, Hey, you got to restart. And you went, Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. So you recertify and you look around and you go, wow, 10 years in, 
What about all the stuff I was going to do? I got to go back to work. And you put your head down and you work, 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 work. And you're going to soccer games and you're doing stuff with your family and your friends. And you look up and now 20 years is gone. And all the other cool stuff that you were going to do in your profession is taken away from you because you had these beautiful milestones that popped up in college, med school, residency, fellowship, board certification. And then all of a sudden, because your life was broken down to one to five year segments. And now all of a sudden, it's this big open path. And without those drivers making you get the next thing, now all of a sudden you kind of fall out of all the stuff that you were going to do. And I've seen that happen so many times. So at an earlier age, I decided I'm not doing that. When I retire, dropping the keys on the desk, walking away, life well-lived, everything done, no regrets, what's next. But it's I'm not looking back at orthopedics going, I wish I had. I would, I'm going to say, I'm glad I did. So I think those four things are very, very critical and they may not resonate. All four of them may not resonate with everybody, but I believe at least one of them will resonate with almost everybody. So the first one would be education. It's important. Some of us are called to teach and train the next, the next clinicians, the next generation, the next leaders, whatever. And so if that is your calling, if you're a good teacher, then embrace it and reach out and start doing it. And you should look for those opportunities and start doing that. And the second one would be research. Some of us are just, just plagued by the question, you know, why, what if, what happens if this happens? Why does this occur? What happens here? Well, heck, I mean, many, many, if not most of us have done research to get where we are, get back into that and do that and be involved in clinical trials or bench research or whatever, and, and contribute back in that me mechanism and that matter and do those things and scratch that itch. The third one would be leadership. Some of us are called to leadership and need to do that. And you don't want to wait to the end of your career to go, wow, I need to be involved in leadership, but I let my whole career go by and now I've got no opportunity left. The opportunities start on a local level where you start to develop those rings of compadres and people that you can rely on and can give you feedback and improve what you do and give you the necessary tools that you need and educational and training sessions, like I said, that the AOA and other groups offer. And then the last one, the one that I hold most dear to my heart is charity. I believe, you know, my family and I are strong evangelical Christians that God put us here for a reason and that we feel the need to use our talents to help those that are less fortunate for ourselves. So I spend a lot of time every year in the developing world, mostly in sub-Saharan Africa, giving back and doing that. We have a tremendous talent. We can help people that, that will never speak our language, that don't understand us, that will never see us again. We can give them so many things just by the, what our hands can do if we would put ourselves out into an uncomfortable situation on the far side of the planet where we're not making any money. There's nothing there for us. And we're doing those things to help those people. So I think if you look at those four buckets, and I can tell you, I've seen many doctors that I want to do mission work after I retire, I want to get to retire. Well, let me tell you, I've spent a lot of time in Africa. They'll take you, but they really wanted you when you were in your 40s. When you were in your 40s, when you were younger and more dynamic and more on the cutting and bleeding edge of orthopedics, they thought that was great. They respect gray hair and they respect the older folks and they love you for coming. But you lose a little, there's, there's a certain amount of it that when you're coming, when you're 65 and you'd already been there for 30 years, that you develop some incredible relationships with people and you, you can help thousands of people on the far side of the globe who are very underprivileged or even here in America that are underprivileged that you wouldn't have gotten if you hadn't stepped out of your safe zone. So 
I don't know how well I balanced it, but I, I realized that I think you've got to scratch those things, call yourself out saying, I'm not going to get com- comfortable and complacent in what I'm doing. I want to make sure that if I retire tomorrow, when I look back, I had a life well lived and there was nothing I would undo. Well, on that note, you know, that was, <laughs> that was a great <laughs> note. Can't Boom. really top that. <laughs> Drop the mic. <laughs> uh, well, Dr. Lundy, it's, it's been great um, speaking with you. It's been you know, great having you on the podcast. We talked about a, a wide breadth of things today, you know, a lot about practice, a lot about just life things, leadership, um, things to consider. You know, I hope the people that are listening to this really uh, I know they're going to really get a lot of it. I got a lot of it. And I'm going to have to go back and listen and take some notes. So, oh, you know, you. We, um, we appreciate your time. We appreciate you coming on the podcast. Are there any last words that you want to say to anybody? You can. I think you just I think you just nailed it, <laughs> nailed it on the head uh, right there with your last words. But again, thank you so much for uh, coming and being a guest on the podcast. Well, I guess the last thing I would say is I think one other thing I would recommend is to live intentionally and not really sure what that meant until um, in December of 19, 2019, I had uh, surgery for prostate cancer. And for the first time in probably decades, all of a sudden my life immediately went to a standstill because you cannot move very quickly after, after that surgery. Let me tell you, you yeah. were, you were down. Uh, and my wife, we were just recent empty nesters. Both kids were off of college. And all of a sudden my wife and I had time to reconnect and say, you know, who are you? Or do you look familiar? And then what are we doing? What, what, what do we want to do? Because the path was incredibly easy to stay at resurgence. We had carved everything out The Inertia, the momentum was to stay at resurgence. The comfortable thing was to stay at resurgence. But we realized that we had, I had another 12 to 15 years left to practice And if we got to the end of my professional career and look back, what are the things that we're going to say, you know, that was the landmark, that was the stake in the road that we should have pivoted and done something different. Let's make an extremely long story short. That's why I am now up here in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, as chair of the Department of Orthopedic Surgery at St. Luke's. I get to interact with the residents here and teach them. I wouldn't trade it for anything. It was the best move I could possibly make at this stage of my career. And it's all as a result of thinking and living intentionally. So I would encourage everybody to do that. Well, Dr. Lundy, again, thank you so much for, uh, for coming on and being a guest. Uh, you know, I, I definitely appreciate all the words of wisdom you've given here today. And again, thank you so much. Yes, sir. My pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. I really appreciate it. Thank you all for listening to yet another episode of the Nailed It Ortho podcast. We hope you all enjoyed listening to this episode. It was really good. I hope you all really got some good information from it. Now, if this is your first time listening to this podcast, do us a favor and please go and leave us a rating. This takes approximately 6.4 seconds to do. If you want to leave us a review, it takes approximately 12 seconds to do and would help us out a bunch. Secondly, go ahead and subscribe to the channel, of course, so you get the notifications. And third, go and check out our YouTube channel. We are on the road to a thousand subscribers. We are a little over 600 and would love your help. So please do so. And we will see you all next week for the next episode.